0: Everyone, welcome back. Episode four of Merica Mao and the Metaverse. The two Pauls are with you again today. And today we have a little bit of news because yesterday the Money Metaverse was released. Paul Schulte's third, fourth book, Paul? Fifth book. God, I have have, have a a misspent youth. And uh, Paul is still in Barcelona. What Paul is going to do today, everybody, is give you a synopsis of all of this. Because, Paul, you're teaching a course in Singapore on this exact topic. Is that correct? Yeah, coming up at the end of the week. Yeah, brilliant. So what I'm going to do, mate, I'm going to do something I don't do well, and I'm going to be quiet for a while, and I'm going to let you. Uh, I'm going to let you dive in. For those who are watching this on YouTube, you can see the shared screen. For those on the podcast, Paul will do a great job at explaining what he's going through. Paul, I'm going to give it to you, the floor over to you, and I'll come back with some questions when I have them.
1: Yeah, that's great. And so, so essentially, what this does is this book does a comparison between. China and the U.S., but I I also want to say that a part of the book is dedicated to Southeast Asia and the six hundred million uh, person market for sort of this battle for the metaverse in in Southeast Asia. Now I've already had a couple of interviews, and I, I just want to say uh, a few things. When you're in the middle of writing a book, you get lost in all kinds of. I mean, you can get lost in the forest, right, and, and forget the trees, and and so. What I want to say is, independent of the Facebook metaverse, we're not talking about that. We're just talking about a, a, a generic metaverse. And and people ask me, well, how do you know this is inevitable, right? I mean, if you build it, will they come? And and I, I've been swimming in this stuff for now year seven. My first book was on, on FinTech back in 2014, and then I wrote... Uh, Another book on uh, AI and quantum computing, and then another one on sort of uh, the millennial IoT experience. And then my recent one last year was more specifically on sort of the way in which, you know, IoT and finance is coming together. This book is, to me, and I've been living in this stuff now, this is my eighth year. To me, the metaverse and the financial metaverse, this money metaverse, is utterly inevitable. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Technologically, culturally, financially, historically, I, I think there's a lot of reasons why we're going down this road. And I want to go into that in a second. And especially you know, pay attention because I, I've been talking to so many people who are steeped in, in crypto and who've made vast fortunes and, and they've helped me along the way as well. And I, I keep in close contact with them. And I don't, I'm not stabbing in the dark here. I'm, I'm talking to people who've made hundreds of millions of dollars in profits from, from this thing. And so I, I trust their instinct and their vision of where this is going. And, and it, my, my work is always collective. So if you go to the first page on this presentation, I just want to show you, this is what we're covering in the book, essentially. right? So we're covering the way in which uh, Tencent and Ping An primarily, Ant Group secondarily, are moving into the metaverse extremely rapidly because they have all that they laid the foundation, they've laid the foundation of blockchain. Blockchain is, is a, a sine qua non of, of where we're headed in the in the metaverse. You can't have it right without blockchain. And I, I will submit to you, you you can't have it without crypto, right? And 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 thirdly, and, and I'm gonna I'm happy to debate this with you, Paul. I, I think the, the presence of central bank coins is also kind of a A given for this, because all of this is going to become a regulated entity. I'm telling you, this is all going to have to get regulated, probably as commodities, more than as uh, securities, I suspect. So so they'll feel more like Chicago, less like New York. And then in the US context, we are I think the one company that stands out the most, that's the most fascinating in the world that has the capacity to really give China a run for the money is Visa, much more so than Facebook or even PayPal. PayPal's great. It's doing amazing stuff, but it's still a relatively small company. Same for Square. MasterCard is, is a bit behind. Coinbase is its own exchange and is doing uh, remarkable stuff, but Coinbase is is more likely going to be a partner. We cover two banks, Signum based in Switzerland and Singapore, Silvergate based in San Diego, basically the two, really the two first crypto banks that are out there. Signum wants to play a very significant role in uh, non-fungible tokens in the listing right, of this, Signum um, doing a lot of work in Singapore, but based in Switzerland. They want to become uh, among the first to really get licensed to list financial products in the metaverse, including NFTs, as probably commodities. And so let's just put that in brackets. Circle is uh, a foundational company out of Boston doing remarkable stuff uh, in every angle. they're coming up for a listing. Link Lodges is probably the most advanced working capital uh, company out of China listed in Hong Kong. And then we have Southeast Asia, Paul. And, and, and Southeast Asia is a massive market and the whole of Southeast Asia is up for grabs. Philippines, Vietnam, Indonesia, Thailand, massive markets, 80, 90, 100 million people apiece, plus Indonesia, 200 and whatever, 75, 85 million, I guess, at high time. I, I, I just think when I look at that very carefully on all those companies, I think C just comes out as the company that's going to dominate. I just think C is going to dominate in this area as blockchain-based crypto payments and e-commerce begins to take over And young populations are dying to try out the metaverse. And so this is, you have all the recipe for C to grab that market in Southeast Asia against grab. So that's one of the conclusions of the book. Pillionaire, one of the problems with global companies, if you're in all these markets, it's like HSBC's problem, trying to transform itself. You have to go to every single regulator. But like HSBC, when it wants to do something, it has to go to 62 regulators because they're in 62 countries. Payoneers in a lot of countries, they're going to have to get their products signed off by all these different regulators. And So if you're in a more restricted environment of, of, of six or eight or 12 countries, uh, you're, you're, it's easier for you to operate. And so if you go to the next page.
0: Got uh, Paul. I just wanted to, Paul. Yes. give you one little anecdote from uh, one little anecdote from uh, a client meeting I had uh, earlier today. And this this guy was an old, uh, you know, a CEO, a CEO of a large hedge fund, and sort of, you know not up to speed with the, with the crypto, the crypto space, or the metaverse as a whole. And he said to me, "What do I need to be looking for?" And and what you've just given me there is a list of winners, but but equally as as important. And I said to him, is to know which companies don't have a strategy. And I think that's you know something which I think is vitally important in the in the traditional asset management world. The companies that you've just alluded to, they should be all winners or winners to some degree, some will dominate, some will not. But equally as important is to find out that the companies that are just not going to cut it, be that a city, be that a Wells Fargo. You know, HSBC potentially could have those issues, right? So these are all things I think are really important, not just to identify winners, but to identify those companies who just don't get it.
1: Uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. I, I think I was talking to someone this morning from another publication, and I think that in, in Europe, there, there's pretty much not a hell of, not a hell of a lot going on. But the one bank that's doing quite interesting stuff is SoftGen. And that's the only one that comes on the radar screen of the larger financial institutions in Europe. In uh, Asia, you you don't have a lot going on in uh, HSBC right now. They should have been way ahead on this, but they've been sort of rediscovering themselves. And I think Standard Chartered, I think DBS has a reputation for being in this, but their reputation may not reflect the reality. As far as the other smaller banks are concerned, I just don't see it. K-Bank had something going early on. They don't, really. The Japanese banks, not much going on. Philippines, not much. Indonesia, among the banks, not much. So I'm afraid there's just not a lot of, there's a lot of sleepiness going on among the regulated licensed banks. The only ones I would say are really awake, doing amazing stuff, is J.P. Morgan first in the world. JP Morgan is first in class. Goldman Sachs. I think Citibank's doing some interesting stuff. They need to get some credit. I think to a lesser extent, Wells Fargo. And then the rest of them are just not on the radar screen in the way that the companies that I mentioned just in the previous page. And so when we we boil it down, we have to boil it down, like I said, in different areas of the US essentially versus China. I had another conversation with somebody in the intelligence world this morning, and I've been saying this for a couple of years now, but I increasingly believe that the the, the meta world that China and and the U.S. create, it's just going to have no shared technology. There's not going to be any open systems. There's not going to be any cooperation or collaboration. I think they're both going to be sealed up pretty much from each other. When I was working in the executive branch in the White House back in the 80s, it was virtually impossible to get money in and out of the, the Soviet bloc. And that includes all the countries around the Soviet Union, right? The Eastern Bloc countries were, they were shut down, right? Technology, capital, mobility, labor was all shut down. And so increasingly, we're seeing that happen in front of our eyes with you know, capital, mobility, labor. And you're seeing it on Wall Street, where there's a name and shame game going on with funds. I'm sure you've seen it, Paul, where there's funds that are that have big stocks from China in their funds, and they're being named and shamed as why are you supporting communism? And that's going on on Twitter all the time. And yep. so it's disturbing, but it's just a reality that we're going to have to accept. And so on the one hand, at the top of that page, we have the key players being J.P. Morgan, Square, Mastercard, Visa, PayPal the Defense Department, and the Securities and Exchange Commission. On the other side, we have basically BSN, Ping An, JD, Alibaba, Tencent, and Huawei. And I, and you and I, last week, Paul, we, we discussed that national security document that came out. Actually, the, the, the call I had this morning was somebody who'd gone through the entire document. And they were very disturbed by it because they, they they said, the two paragraphs you picked out, Paul, that you said to me, man, if you read the entire document that was released last week, the national security implications of BSN, it's pretty hardcore. They are looking at not just uh, containing, but trying to roll back BSN. And so that's just something that is...
0: But, but there isn't a chance of them doing this. Well, that's the whole thing, right? Outside of cyber attacks that we should not discount on from either side, I mean... The the cat's out of the bag on both sides of this equation, right? And you know, it's, mm-hmm. it, the cat's the cat's out of the bag on both sides of this equation, right? So at the end of the day, this is like trying to control nuclear technology during the fifties and sixties, right? Once it became widely available, it, there was an arms race, and we are in the equivalent of a blockchain arms race globally.
1: No,
0: that's right, but don't forget, during the arms
1: race, the U.S. had a very tight grip on who in the West got the nukes, right? And there was a very contained strategy of, of knowing if you use these weapons, there's severe consequences. So, so yeah, th- th- there's, there's an element to that. I would like to think of it as a different analogy, a satellite technology. Satellite technology was extremely closely held by the US for many decades, and China and Russia were trying to get a hold of it. And it took, it took them many decades because they were contained and, and, and trapped inside of systems. I think China is, and also the U.S. did a very good job of like soft power in Hollywood to get people on its side to see that there was a superiority in supporting the West over the Soviet Union. And, and there's a lot of reasons why that was true and a lot of reasons why it was false. But I keep saying that China's soft power is horrible. And so if you can get people to stop using BSN out of soft power, out of ideology, out look at how bad these people are. This is what the US is doing right now in exactly the same way they did it with the Soviet Union. And so yeah, you're right. I mean, there is this, there is a sense in which it's in which it's unavoidable, but we're talking about shutting, rolling back, containing, shutting down smart cities all through the Silk Road. We're talking about e-commerce and, and payment systems through the Chinese blockchain-based infrastructure. We're talking about trade and, and finance and service, payments for services with Chinese
0: corporates and, and Western corporates. And, and Paul, at the end of the day, it's going to revolve around suppressing digital RMB. That's that's where the battlegrounds, that's where the battle lines will be drawn. How do you stop the, the adoption of digital RMB? Right.
1: That's exactly right. BSN's foundation is the eventual use of the digital RMB and, and make the digital RMB a, a unit of exchange for the outside world as, as, as and create a circularity in the same way that the dollar has. And that's the underlying message of the national security document last week is. This is not acceptable to us. We, well, we are, look at the end of the day,
0: Paul, and we don't want to get off too much off topic here. But at the end of the day, the difference between the U.S. dollar and the digital RMB is the U.S. dollar can't be traced, where every tra- every transaction on a digital RMB can be traced, and that's something that's going to put shivers down the spine of every every Chinese neighbor or any anyone who, or any government where digital Chinese payments are are accepted.
1: Well, I talked to the, one of the guys who, who created uh, BSN, who's from Fudan University, who is a friend, and I have no reason for him to be lying to me. But he said that you know, the BSN through this company, Red Date, which is the international version of BSN, international users of, of the BSN network will be completely anonymous at an international level outside of China. I don't know if that's true or not but that's something that he will make a claim even when he is talking to investors. Got it. So take that for what it's worth. Anyway, moving on, Paul, these are all very good points. What the book is about is w- w- we split up the, the money metaverse into the, the fundamental use of crypto, fintech, insure tech, and prop tech. And all of those are for three things, right? Crypto is the fundamental underlying asset, the tradability asset, right? FinTech is for all financial uh, transactions. InsurTech is essentially for the uh, way in which we digitize the human body. And PropTech is the way that we digitize uh, property assets. Property is the largest asset class in the world by far. It's much, much larger than the bond market or the equity market, multiples larger. I mean, 50 to 60% of every bank's balance sheet in the world is property, whether it's commercial, residential, or industrial, right? And so that's what the book is, is, is carved up in. Essentially, what I want to say on there, Paul, is I think that fintech, through companies like Tencent, companies like PayPal, Visa, MasterCard, Square, and a couple of others, have been involved in blockchain for between three to five years. And so they've been quite ahead. The tech worries me that the American and the European, UK insured tech companies came along later. They came like in the, the late teens, 2019, 2020. I believe I've been very pessimistic on them since their listings, most of which happened early this year. They rushed to the IPO market, they were sort of outsourced or off-the-shelf technology. None of it is involved in anything related to blockchain. And so they were very late to the game. And so they brought with them sort of bubblegum and bobby pins technologies, a lot of which was off-the-shelf, to take advantage of a hot market. I worry about the insure tech sector as people who missed the boat. The fintech sector, boy, they're good. PropTech is very new. So the PropTech guys have a possibility to leapfrog all of that painful blockchain build out and go right into the metaverse if they want. But again, we're looking at like Jones, Lang, LaSalle, and large lumbering property companies. Are they going to be any any more awake now, Paul, than the banks were six years ago when you and I were talking about this in Hong Kong?
0: Right, you know, but Paul, are, they, okay. are they the right group? Are they the right group to think about, or should we be more thinking about developers and how they can how they can be ahead of the curve in this?
1: Well, I mean, so there's a good example on developers, right? So I could just tell you, in talking to some of the, the uh, developers and, and some of these landlords and, and property operators in Hong Kong, they're just not with the program, right? You know? and, and why is that? Because I went through, I believe it was. Sunun Kai, and then I did Henderson, and I looked at the average age of the board of directors. I think the average age of the board of directors for both companies was above 80. How are these people going to like, get with the program on, never mind blockchain, but on what the hell this metaverse thing means? And so this is where you have major billionaires and you know, major entrenched interests who are, at this point in the game, are simply not interested. Plus, they're, they're, they're trying to find their new role with China. And so I'm skeptical about the developers in Hong Kong. The Chinese developers are a lot more agile and they have got great smart city technology. Jones Lang LaSalle, I don't know. I don't know. I think they're trying. I, I haven't heard a lot of like really amazing stuff, but we we gotta have these property developers getting with the program or they're going to be in in, in really big trouble like the banks were six years ago. Got it. And and so that's kind of uh, the basic guts of the book. So if we go to the next page, I can give you a quick sense of of kind of what we're talking about. When we talk about NFTs, what in the hell are we talking about? And so so we're talking about two things, basically decentralized networks and centralized networks. And, And I think the world is going to be sort of a hodgepodge of both. Essentially, what we're looking at here, Paul, is very much aligned along the lines of the economics of how the railroads were created in the 1870s, 1880s. I mean, the Forbes family made their fortune in railroad. A lot of these guys made their fortune in railroad after they made money in whatever, steel, sugar, rope, tobacco, meat, opium in, in, in China. And we are looking at how are we going to build out this new digital railroad? And so these are these are some of the ideas that we cover in the book. But when you look at the railroads in America, they were part federal, they were part state, they were part monopoly, they were part franchise, right? It was all kinds of things. And Chicago ended up being the center of the entire national railroad system. That's how Chicago got to be Chicago, yep. right? And so we're going to have some major, multi-tens of billions of dollars companies coming out of those who can figure out who's going to be the new digital Chicago, right? New York is a port, right? Chicago is a, is a railroad headquarters, right? Denver was a railroad headquarters. San Francisco was a railroad headquarters, as well as a port, right? And so-,
0: so Right, but, so but obviously- like these. But the definition of that was physical, right? What is an example of the equivalent of a Denver, San Francisco, and Chicago in a decentralized world?
1: Well, go to the next page and and we'll see. Who wants to be the Chicago of the entire global uh, system? Facebook, right? Yep. And so Facebook would like to be Chicago. And I think that Alibaba (laughs) was supposed to be Chicago until Jack Ma got a little bit too insolent. And yeah. thought they could be a parallel uh, railroad system to China's BSN. And Beijing was like, hey, guys, I got news for you. We're not having a parallel system, it's one system. And you better get on board really quick. And if we need to beat you over the head in public, we will do that. This is exactly what happened to Alibaba. The Chicago in China is gonna be Beijing. The People's Bank of China will be Chicago. Mm. And in America, you better be careful because Washington does make the rules. And so you better be nice to Washington or they're going to be really not nice to you. And so Facebook was very close to Trump, not so close to Biden. And they're paying a price for that. And so a lot of this is overcoming the regulatory structures, the political structures, navigating Congress. It's very messy. So we can't just look at the technology. We want to see who wants to become this. I think Tencent is going to be a, a critically important part of, of what's going to come out of this. I think Ping An will be something like a will be something like Denver. It's going to be a major infrastructure hub of the uh, metaverse. I think that Alibaba is going to be in the doghouse for quite a long time and will have to reinvent itself and re. Orient its
0: political antenna. Well, but can, we just, can we just talk a little bit? Of, can we just talk about those two fallen angels for a second, right? So, I, I put I would put Alibaba and Facebook in a similar bucket, i.e., that reputationally they've taken an enormous hit for the by the parties that drive their success. So, in the West, it's the it's consumers that drive success, right? And the Facebook brand is so is so bad. Well, they had to change the name, right? They wouldn't have changed the name if, face, if the Facebook brand wasn't toxic, right? And you've just alluded to in the Chinese context, you've got to be aligned with the party, right? Jack Ma pissed off the party, therefore, Alibaba's in the doghouse. So how can Facebook succeed, given its reputational snafus, if Alibaba cannot?
1: Oh, I know. That's a great question. You know what I think is going on here? I think that, yeah, we talked a lot about that this morning with another call, Here's what I think, Paul. I think that in the case of Alibaba, I think that the damage, interestingly, that Jack Ma has done to Alibaba, I mean, we're talking about, look at today, the stock is $136. That stock was $330, right? That is a 50% drop. Since all the mess with Facebook came out, you're talking about something that is like 10% down off the top right? And so the stock price of Alibaba versus Facebook is telling us very different information. That's the first thing. The second thing is, we talked about this a lot last week when I was at the Milken Conference, when I was at the Global Web Summit. It was like Facebook bushwhack, paddling Facebook. Let's publicly humiliate them. At every turn, there was a a Facebook bashing panel and and including keynote addresses to the entire delegations of both conferences, like 100% 100% capacity of some really important influencers. And so, but but here's what I would say too, and I, I've been reflecting on this. Balzac said something. He said, behind every great fortune is a great crime. And you know what? You look at the Delanos, the Perkins, the Forbes family, the many of the other four or five most famous uh, Boston Brahmin or New York families made their fortunes from, the heroin trade in China over 70 years, right? And so guess what, that they're still in business. Guess what, the Sackler family is still in business. Guess what, Dow Chemical. Here's my point. The point is that Facebook has managed to gather up multi-generational wealth, right? We are talking about 10 generations of wealth that Facebook has accumulated. And Mark Zuckerberg, unfortunately, is the majority shareholder of the company. Only he can make himself step down. That that would probably be the best thing that could happen to the company, but he won't do it. But I think that when you have that kind of power and that kind of money behind you, and I told you uh, the other day, uh, we were talking about this on, on WhatsApp. They have committed $10 billion to this. Facebook has committed $10 billion to build out the, the Chicago metaverse, mm. right? And I think you're going to see everybody else have to pony up, right? The arms race has begun, right? And when you built the railroad in the 1800s, it was also like a, like a frenetic arms race. Like, okay, you're going to build a Chicago? I'm going to build a St. Louis. You're going to build the Denver? I'm going to go to San Francisco. and And then everybody had to beat the other guy with even parallel tracks until, guess what? The state intervened and created monopolies. And I think... We're going to have a situation where eventually the state's going to decide who are going to be the five companies in the metaverse, like the banks. Oh, got it. I think that's where but, we're going to be in 10 years.
0: Right. So, Okay. So, man, let's square the circle here. So, for someone who picks up the book on Amazon, by the way, a uh, little plug there for you. Anyone who picks up the book, anyone who attends your class this Friday? Thursday, Thursday and Friday, yeah. I Friday? think it's
1: closed. We have like 400 people attending so far. So, I think it's um, getting closed down now, but I, mean, I, I, I think you can
0: check. Amazing. Uh, what would you like for them to take away from from reading the book or from, from the class you're about to teach?
1: Well, so what you take away is don't think that this thing is some flaky, weird, strange phenomenon that's going to be ephemeral and, and it'll, it'll blow over. To me, what is happening is inevitable. It is, it follows necessarily from the rollout of everything else. And there are some political and some cultural elements here of young people who want to escape a critically important phrase, which is called economic crimes. They want to escape a world where they feel locked out, where they feel is so corrupt, is so geared against them, is so full of tax breaks and tax loopholes for the wealthy, for places to launder money or hide money or, or pay off corrupt politicians in order to get their franchises that these young people don't have a hope in hell of ever setting up a legitimate business. That they think they can do in the metaverse. So there's all of these things are are an inexorable march toward this metaverse. If you see the movie, if you haven't seen the movie Ready Player One, right? It was based on the novel from 2011. This guy had huge vision. And that novel was an international bestseller and was translated into 21 languages. That is gonna tell you a lot about what we where we are going, because that the metaverse is a lot of what's described in, in in Ready Player One. And, Paul, we need to have a really clear-eyed discussion about the evils that can happen with that. If if Facebook doesn't change its its spots and, and clean up its act, we're gonna have a lot of the same evils in the metaverse that we experience in our in our, our social network today that we look at on our iPhones, you know, 13 hours a day. So if someone says to me, you mean we're going to be wearing Oculus glasses 13 hours a day? And I'm like, well, you're looking at your phone 13 hours a day anyway. What, why is this going to be any different, right? And so we want to be clear-eyed about the benefits, which are astonishing, but also
0: clear-eyed about the potential dangers. Got it. So Paul, where can people pick up the book? Amazon is one. Oh, place. Amazon,
1: Amazon and the hard cover is out. The e-cover should be out today.
0: Amazing, mate. Well, this was great. Good luck on good luck on Thursday and Friday with the class. Good luck with the launch. And we'll chat to you again next week. Hey, thank you. Great stuff.